0: This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast
1: from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University.
0: Hi, everybody, um, and welcome to Doing Translational Research. I'm your usual host of this program, Chris Wildeman. Um, I'm speaking to you from the basement apartment in my house. This is episode one of our social distancing series. Um, my three children are in the room directly above me. So if you hear any bonks in the episode, that just means that the seven-year-old um, decided to bonk the three-year-old. Um, and if you hear any metal, that is the sink that is getting replaced also in the upstairs of our house. So with that long introductory Um, piece. I'll now tell you about the interesting part of our show, which is that we have um, Tassily McKay here. Um, And Tassily is a researcher who's worked at RTI for a number of years, um, Research Triangle Institute. Um, And I first, although Tassily and I have never met um, in person, I first became aware of some of her work Um, That was in collaboration with one of my friends, Megan Comfort. Um, And, you know, I think of Tassley's work as really sort of focusing on helping us develop a more nuanced understanding of the health and well-being of severely marginalized populations, especially sort of justice involved populations. So Tessley, um, now that i butchered the pronunciation of your name and probably misstated your research interests, welcome to the program.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Um,
0: so I guess let's just kind of jump into things a little bit since this is going to be a little awkward hundreds of, mi- hundreds of miles apart, no matter what we do. So um, ha- how would you summarize sort of your main research interests? Um, Or or sort of another way to think about that is, how would you think about the big research questions that you're trying to answer with your work?
1: Well, I would say that you got it um, fairly right, um, as well as the pronunciation of my first name, which is rarely done right. So thanks. Um, Excellent. Excellent. And um, yeah, I... I am working on health and well-being of folks um, in marginalized communities involved with the criminal justice system, absolutely. Um, And my particular interest in terms of health and well-being is on interpersonal violence um, and specifically the interplay between structural violence and interpersonal violence. Um, And I'm most interested in the most common acts of interpersonal violence, like violence between intimate partners. Um, I'm curious about, the connections between intimate partner violence and other forms of violence and abuse within families in the context of mass incarceration. And I would say ultimately, uh, what I'm hoping to understand is how we can really keep each other safe and do it in ways that don't come back to bite us later.
0: And and so what are, can, can you think of an example of sort of a, a specific program or intervention that you feel like has been successful in that. My, my assumption, and then also based on reading a bunch of your work, um, what I've come to understand is that sort of mass incarceration hasn't been an effective solution for addressing those issues. But it might be nice to just hear a little bit about where you see sort of some snippets of hope.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and I think it is those kinds of, contradictions in our government responses to violence that really interests me Um, and and specifically the fact that right now we're funding one set of government systems, health and human services programs, um, public um, health-based violence prevention programs to try to lift up and protect vulnerable families, families living in poverty, make sure that they're safe Um, child welfare systems. Um, And then on the other hand, this whole other set of government systems um, on the criminal justice side of the fence that we know more and more are economically hobbling those families and perhaps even physically endangering them. And yeah, I I think that um, there are a few programs that I find really exciting and promising in terms of alternative Approaches to violence prevention and response. Um, And then also, just globally, um, I'd like to see us be honest about the fact that our um, government interventions may well be working at cross purposes, um, Mm -hmm. which is, is significant on a human level. You know, those contradictions are manifest. Um, in harms to people's real bodies. Um, and also, even just on an economic level, you know, we're just pouring um, hundreds of millions, in some cases billions, into criminal justice system responses to violence and also into health and human services based responses to violence. Um, and unless we know those are working in concert, um, we really risk them sort of canceling each other out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it it does seem, it always, it always strikes me as interesting. It'll be, it'll be fun to try to mask this enough that I don't get myself in trouble with any specific agency, but it, it always strikes me as interesting when you see a call from one agency that is about justice involved populations And then it doesn't align at all with what anybody who knows anything about the criminal justice system would think was a reasonable type of intervention. And then you see exactly the opposite thing from justice agencies where they're sort of making calls for very specific types of interventions around intimate partner violence, especially that don't align with anything that with what folks in HHS would know. So it's just, Exactly,
1: yeah. And I think that this is a really important point of engagement for folks who are invested in translational research, right? Because, you know, in some ways this is, some of that internal contradiction is intrinsic to the bureaucratic workings of any well-intentioned government. Some of that goes with the territory, Um, but some of it, we've really tolerated and even contributed to as scholars and researchers, because in our own scholarship, we tolerate this incredible sort of siloization of work on supposedly vulnerable, um, you know, innocent children and families on the one hand, and then criminals on the other hand. Um, and we sometimes don't talk about the fact that those are literally the same families and those literal same families are engaged simultaneously with all of these different systems. And so the decisions that we're making in each set of system systems are informing and potentially influencing one another. And I think this is especially the case with regard to partner violence research, um, you know, which has been, I think to some extent, um, under theorized period, but the dominant theoretical traditions within partner violence scholarship are really discipline specific. Um, You know, there's a certain way of thinking about partner violence in criminological work, a certain way of thinking about it in public health scholarship. And those different kind of bodies of scholarly work are guiding and informing these really different government responses. Um, And if we don't, take responsibility for integrating those theoretical perspectives, or at least bringing them into direct confrontation um, and aiming to address some of those contradictions. I think we don't have as much of a leg to stand on um, in critiquing how governments are or aren't um, concerted in their responses.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, I mean, it's a great point and I think It does make me think of this other sort of tension that you see that's more within sort of the research community where a lot of the things that place best in sort of disciplinary journals are based on these like large, either broadly representative or nationally representative data sets where the questions you can answer are by nature pretty shallow. Um, and are based on these really sort of limited measures. Um, But then the work that's more sort of nuanced and holistic in terms of enhancing our understanding is very, very difficult to place in those sort of top journals. And so you end up with this distribution of articles that sort of split between things that are more applied and things that... um, are more kind of basic research, even though there's no real reason for it to have developed that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's certainly the case um, with regard to partner violence. And one of the things that I think that contributes to is, um, you know, there's a whole one of the areas of really potent sort of theoretical um, and practical contradiction has to do with long-standing application of. Theories um, in criminology, first of deterrence, um, you know, sort of rational choice criminological right. theories, and the development of a whole host of criminal justice system responses to domestic, to domestic violence that are based in um, that rational choice model, even though we have more and more information um, that human beings aren't quite rational actors um, and, and that deterrence based policies don't seem to work as well as those theories would predict. Um, with regard to partner violence um, and other forms of violence. Um, And then, um, you know, we have a whole other um, body of work that is qualitative and ethnographic work that is starting to be in direct conversation with folks about their experiences with the criminal justice system. Um, But that hasn't translated, really, to partner violence world. And so we're working in large part, on theoretical perspectives, some of which haven't been empirically tested at all, even in quantitative data, but um, most of which haven't been grounded in the qualitative perspectives of people whose lives we're talking about, um, which, you know, again, from a translational research perspective, seems like it should become a minimum expectation of our theoretical work.
0: Yeah, it is, I mean, it it is always fascinating to me how you know a lot of criminological research just treats all forms of violence as equal. Um, it applies sort of very similar theoretical perspectives across the distribution, but yes, you know from a rational choice perspective, a property crime with someone who you will never encounter again where you could get access to a tremendous number of resources works really well within that framework for someone who's living in poverty, but engaging in intimate partner violence is almost never going to be something that you could ever sell within a rational choice sort of perspective, right? Just because of the sort of massive repercussive effects that it would have for both folks across their whole kind of social network.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that is really important about beginning when we talk about violence and we talk about criminal justice system responses to violence, beginning to include these much more widespread and common forms of violence, albeit more private forms of violence, like intimate partner violence, like child maltreatment, Um, not only because those are the forms of violence to which we're actually most vulnerable and to which the most vulnerable among us are vulnerable, um, but also because, like you said, you know, these, when we turn our gaze to these forms of violence, they start to poke holes in some of the um, scholarly understandings that we've been working with for a lot of years. And I think we also see that with regard to social disorganization theory perspectives, um, you know, which have held up pretty decently um, in empirical research on things like youth delinquency in public spaces um, or sometimes even homicides, um, which happen, you know, fairly publicly often. And, do not go underreported by definition. Um, but we almost reflexively then apply these same theories to partner violence. I mean, an overwhelming number of studies on partner violence that apply any sort of um, theoretical perspective apply social disorganization theory. Um, but there's a real mismatch um, between some of the assumptions of social disorganization theory and partner violence as a private event um, between people who know each other intimately, um, occurring in private spaces and and really affected um, by people's beliefs about traditional gender roles and um, family lives. Anyway, there are a lot of complexities there that I think um, people who are actually living these experiences are deeply familiar with and could shed some light on if we were to invite their perspectives in a little more deeply.
0: So I want to, I want to engage with that, that last piece in a second, um, because that's one of the things that I think is so distinctive about your work. But before, before we do that, I, I just wanted a little bit of clarification around some terminology. So I've always heard And I'm like always five years behind on all terminology. Um, I have like preemptively become someone who's totally out of touch in my early (laughs) 40s, which is um, either good or a shame. I haven't decided yet, but um, I've always heard of it called intimate partner violence, but you're saying partner violence. So I guess it, it would just be, it would be interesting to hear sort of how that evolution in terms of terminology has happened.
1: Oh, thanks. Um, I think that that actually may be a quirk of my own. I have started using the term partner violence um, as a sort of shorthand um, to mean uh, violence between people who are um, sexual, romantic, or co-parenting partners. And that comes out of um, growing evidence that um, there's quite a bit of partner violence that takes place between people who are have once been um, sexually or romantically involved but are no longer, and particularly um, among people who are in contact with each other as active co-parents of minor children,
0: um, yeah. and per-
1: especially when we talk about folks living in low-income and marginalized communities, people involved with the criminal justice system, um, the proportion of people who are in some kind of fairly intensive and sometimes intensively conflicted contact, day-to-day contact with um, a child's parent whom they're not romantically involved with any longer is even greater, um, you know, out of survival necessity, I
0: think. Right. No, that totally, that totally makes sense. Um, and that's not, by the way, that's not just a, that's not just a, quirky ode definition. That is a very well reasoned <laughs> definition. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I never, I mean, I, like I've dabbled in trying to understand sort of household violence more broadly, but never really dug into it all that much. But one of the things that always struck me as interesting was like in the fragile families data, how do you talk about violence that happens between these parents who haven't been coupled in, you know, three to five years. Right. Exactly. um, But who are in these very tense and consequential sort of interactions consistently. Uh, Yeah. So I, I, yeah, no, I like the partner violence terminology makes good sense. Okay. Sorry. That was, that was like a four-minute aside on terminology. I've totally derailed us. Um, so the, I mean, the thing, and, and I think um, I'll stop bugging you with questions after after this one because I think this will be a big one. But can you just talk a little bit about how you engage with community partners and sort of what you feel like have been kind of some of the real highlights of that and what you think have been some of the real kind of difficulties with that
1: absolutely yeah um so in in my research on partner violence prevention and response i work in really close partnership with a few amazing community-based organizations that work to support youth and adults in developing healthy relationships and in um developing strategies for recognizing and responding to abuse, ideally as early as possible. Um, and not to pick favorites, but a couple of the most amazing partners I've been able to work with on multi-year research are youth and family services in Rapid City, South Dakota, and more than conquerors in Conyers, Georgia. And, um, I just have so much, um, admiration for them. I would say that the most challenging part of, um working in partnership with each of those organizations is also what's the best part, which is just really straight up being put to shame um, on a regular basis by the kinds of skills that my collaborators at those organizations have that I just don't. Like really important things like um how to actually talk to you. You know, when I might write a protocol with a script and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this isn't good. (laughs) We couldn't actually say this um, face to face with a young person. Um, and, And, and then, you know, more sort of squishy things like how to inspire a team around a goal, how to turn a complicated research protocol into something that's not just workable in a practical sense, which again is real strength of theirs that um, I am sometimes um, embarrassed by my lack of, um, but also how to make it meaningful. Um, and yeah, they know what's going to fall flat, whether that's falling flat, um, you know, logistically or interpersonally and what's going to fly. And they break that down for me really candidly. Um, and that's been amazing. I've also been really lucky for about 10 years um, to um, have a a couple of different collaborations with the Center for Urban Families in Baltimore. Um, Joe Jones there does incredible work on um, fatherhood and partner violence. Um, And again, I I think there's just a a sense of um, rubber meeting road um, that isn't just because those folks are actually doing the work that they do. It's they're doing the work they do because they are so damn good at it in ways that, um, I'm not, and I just learned so much. It's really for better and worse, humbling, uh, all the time. (laughs)
0: Um, I feel like humbling all the time is (laughs) overwhelming. Uh, (laughs) And are there, I mean, I guess, you know, thinking especially, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't mention this when introducing you, but you're about to finish your PhD at the London School of Economics, like, um, and and in some ways, could end up pursuing a more traditional sort of academic path um, after doing that. And I guess, I, I mean, it would just be interesting to hear a little bit about. If you decided to go that direction, do you think there would be more tensions with some of the community organizations that you work with? Or do you think that it would just be interesting to hear a little bit about how working at an academic institution versus somewhere like RTI could compare in their minds?
1: Gosh, yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I... I don't know enough to know, um, whether or how that would be true. What I do feel like I know is that, um, those tensions are so real, regardless of where we're working. And one of the things that's been so wonderful about having some, um, longer term, um, and fairly intensively committed research partnerships with, um, Amazing community folks is that um, I've learned that that having those open tensions is a good thing. That there's a, a lot of place for um, sense of humor in those relationships and a lot of place for directness about the tension because in some ways I think one of the most amazing things that comes out of those is accountability, whether it's whether you're sitting in a research organization like RTI or an academic institution, um, hopefully part of what you're getting from that relationship is a kind of accountability that you wouldn't otherwise have. And if that's not ever uncomfortable, tense or confronting, then it's not really accountability. Um, -hmm. and so I, I really do kind of love, um, the ability to have that tension, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, that totally, I mean, it totally makes sense, especially, and I, you know, I think about this a bunch because I kind of think of you and I as working in very parallel areas, but me being more like small child focused and you being more sort of holistically focused on the family. And I mean, the thing that's interesting is like, if we get the story wrong, it's massively consequential if we have any impact on policy having gotten the story wrong um and so i think yeah no that idea of there needing to be this tension with the accountability is really um yeah helpful and important um so uh this has gone longer than most of our episodes which i guess is um good for us to know as we we move into the social distancing world so i'll 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 let you go here, but I I just wanted to say two things kind of in closing. First, um, you know, thanks so much for being willing to join us during what is a chaotic time, I think, for everybody. Um, And second, just to say that, you know, I personally am really looking forward to watching your career develop. Like, I just think you're already doing incredibly important things, and I think it's just going to get better over time. So I, I really appreciate you joining us and um, learning a little bit more about your work.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. And thanks for having me. These are such important conversations and I really appreciate um, the way that you're creating them in this podcast.
0: Well, you can credit Carrie Chalmers for that, who will refuse to get on the phone to take credit. Go but, Carrie! <laughs> Um Okay, well, thanks so much for, for joining us. And uh, this is signing off for doing translational research. For information about translational research or the work of the Brainstrom Brenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.